0: Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show.
1: Welcome to Helix Talk episode 50. I'm your co-host, Dr. King. I'm Dr. Schumann.
0: And I'm Dr. Patel.
1: And to celebrate episode 50, we've decided that from now on, every three weeks when we introduce our Helix Talk episodes, we're going to have some provocative titles to help introduce the listeners to the topic a little bit better and maybe draw them in a little bit more.
0: Well, that's very exciting. And I did not realize we were at episode 50. So I guess it calls for a celebration.
1: The title of this episode is Three Shocking Recommendations from Chest 2016 That Will Blow Your Mind. So essentially we're talking today about the 2016 chest guidelines, which are guidelines uh, dealing with basically anticoagulants. And we picked out three of the recommendations from the chest guidelines that either were very surprising to us or that we just flat out don't necessarily agree with.
0: So first and foremost, the controversy about what do we call these drugs, right? Um, I've heard so many acronyms. I don't even know where to start. I've heard Noax, I've heard DOAX, I've heard SOAX, where T is kind of like a little silent. So what's the deal?
1: When they first came out, we called them Noax because they were novel or new. That's what the N stood for. And at some point, someone said, hey, at some point, these aren't going to be new or novel anymore. What are we going to call them at that point? So the name didn't really age well. So at this point, if you look at the CHEST guidelines, they continue to use the acronym NOAC, but instead of new or novel, the N now stands for non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant. Uh, so NOAC, the N being non-vitamin K, then OAC is oral anticoagulant. Same acronym, but they've kind of redefined what the N means versus what it initially meant when the NOACs first came out.
0: Yeah, and also I was very surprised to read the concern from some of the clinicians that if you abbreviate the non vitamin K oral anticoagulants to NOAX, you know, in the documentation or patient chart, it may be interpreted as no anticoagulation as well.
2: Yeah, I could I could foresee this point in a few years where joint commission comes in and on their do not use you know, you've got your morphine sulfate, magnesium sulfate and then your NOAX, just right on there on that list. So I guess they headed it off at the pass.
1: Yeah, in all fairness, that's probably going to be the only thing in the future that would prevent the DOAC versus NOAC civil war is to have someone like Joint Commission or ISMP, the Institute of Safe Medication Practice, basically say you can't or shouldn't use NOAC as an abbreviation, but until something like that happens, we're always going to have a separation of NOAC versus DOAC camps.
2: In our VA, we've gone through all the three. We were we were in the NOAC, then we're SOAC, and I think we're at DOAC right now. But it's hard to tell because we get these little memos that please disregard all that previous stuff. Now it's this, and just kidding. Now now change it here. So, Dr. Schumann, what does DOAC mean? If we've kind of established NOAC, what is DOAC? So I like this one. Uh, DOAC or direct oral anticoagulant. And it looks like this one's coming on strong as preferred abbreviation from some organizations, for example,
1: ISTH, the International Society on
2: Thrombosis and
1: Hemostasis. And the ISTH actually made this recommendation after surveying about 150 clinicians who were hematologists and kind of in the know in terms of being involved in the anticoagulants. And what they found was they asked the participants, you know, what do you like? Do you like SOAC, NOAC, or DOAC? It was equally balanced between NOAC and DOAC, and SOAC was really not preferred. And it wasn't until uh, later on in the survey they asked about, do you foresee NOAC being a risk of being no anticoagulant that they kind of made that recommendation. So the surveyors were equally likely to say NOAC versus DOAC, but the guideline from ISTH said, hey, let's go with DOAC simply because of this perceived risk of NOAC, meaning no anticoagulants.
0: Yeah, and that being said, you know, the rarely used or not really preferred uh, acronym is the SOAC, and that basically elaborates as the target-specific oral anticoagulants.
2: And anytime you cut got something with a letter that's silent on the end, I know we're not getting quite into etymology here, but, I um, mean, you know, it get a little confusing.
1: Yeah, so essentially where we're at now is NOAC. Um, if you do use it, you should know you're using it as a non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant. If you use DOAC, you might... Snicker at the NOAC group saying that it could be no anticoagulant or the non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant. Um, And then SOAC, you know, like you said, to have this silent word as part of your acronym probably isn't the best idea either. So no one really agrees at this point. CHEST is using NOAC. DOAC is definitely the second preferred acronym as far as CHEST is concerned, but it's the primary version of the acronym as far as some other hematology organizations are concerned. So at this point, no one's going to say one is right and one is wrong.
2: All right, so now that we've established that you know, there's obviously some, some vagueness in some of these recommendations, and we're just starting out just naming the dang things, all right, Dr. Kane, what's the next recommendation there?
1: Are they trying to argue about like the spacing or the font? So the next interesting recommendation was recommendation number two. So they have, you know, a number of recommendations. The second one I think is the most provocative recommendation in the guidelines. And to quote them, it says, In patients with DVT of the leg or pulmonary embolism and no cancer, as long-term anticoagulant therapy, we suggest dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, or edoxaban over vitamin K antagonist therapy. And this was a grade 2B recommendation. In layman's terms, what they're saying is that you should pick a NOAC or a DOAC over warfarin in patients who have a DVT of the leg or a pulmonary embolism.
0: Yeah, and that recommendation is true for most individuals, but then there are always going to be patients who won't be, ca- you know, candidate for these new agents so or non-vitamin K-dependent anticoagulants. So they will still be getting the warfarin uh, instead.
1: It's like a dialysis patient, for example, great candidate for not a NOAC, right?
0: Absolutely. That's a good example.
1: So I think one thing to think about is the grade of recommendation. So this was a 2B recommendation grade. So you either have a weak or a strong recommendation, one or a two. So this was a weak recommendation. And then the B, it stands for moderate evidence. So it's not high evidence, which would be a grade A. And it's not low quality of evidence, grade C. So it's weak, moderate evidence.
0: So talking about the level of recommendation, let's really look into where all these recommendations are coming from. Obviously, they are looking into the clinical trials and you know head-to-head comparisons, but let's dive in a little bit deeper and see what we can find that is very shocking.
1: Yeah, and before we even get to the literature, just thinking about it, if you're going to recommend that you take a NOAC over warfarin, you should either see an efficacy benefit, a safety benefit, or a cost benefit. That would be the only reason for most indications that you would consider one drug superior over another drug and recommend it. Yeah, especially when you're
2: talking about a paradigm shift and completely, not just from a drug that's pretty similar, but you're talking just a shift in
1: mechanisms as well. Right. So why don't we get started with the, the first group of studies, which looked at the Bigotran versus warfarin with the low molecular weight heparin bridge. And there were two studies, about 5,000 patients. These were called the Recover1 and Recover2 studies. What they showed was that uh, between the bigotran and warfarin, there was no difference in efficacy, which was VTE recurrence, uh, venous thromboembolism recurrence, so the blood clot coming back. And there was no difference in major bleeding. So, similar efficacy, similar safety.
0: And then the other agents that we have in that NOAC category is rivaroxaban. So, rivaroxaban again was compared head to head with warfarin or a combination of warfarin and low molecular weight heparin um, the two different trials where the evidence is emerging from were um, acronymed as einstein dvt and einstein pe travel again just like the the bigotran trials uh, we mentioned earlier the if you compare the efficacy there was no difference in vte recurrence
2: What's interesting, though, in looking at that one is, and one of the things you start thinking about that sounds pretty good, okay, major bleeding was lower or considered better, less of an issue with roburoxibane, and they had a relative risk of 0.55, so that sounds great. The only thing about that is it's really only shown in the pooled analysis of
1: those two studies. When you say pool, do you mean that they took two studies, glued them together, and then analyzed the results of the two trials combined versus any individual trial. Right. And again, it's, it's a nice way to start
2: pulling. You know, if you want to pick out little uh, bits of data and kind of amplify them, it's kind of like, you know, cutting and pasting so we don't have enough of a power maybe. But again, if we pull it together, get a big number,
1: things start coming out more if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. So what they found in the DVT trial, Einstein DVT, major bleeding was 0.8% versus 1.2% with a non-significant p-value. And they looked at major or clinically relevant bleeding, and both groups had the exact same percentage of 8.1%, so obviously no difference between the two groups. So in the DVT trial, no difference in major bleeding, no difference in major bleeding or clinically relevant bleeding if you combine the two together.
0: Um, like we mentioned, there it was a pool analysis. So take a look at what the major bleeding events was like in the uh, Einstein P trial. So it was 1.1% with the roroxaban treated group versus 2.2% with the warfarin group. And that p value was statistically significant. Um, again, depends on how the major bleeding versus the major or clinically relevant bleeding was defined, that major or clinically relevant bleeding incidences were 10.3% in the raroxibin group and 11.4% in the warfarin group, and this p-value was not significant.
2: And that's an interesting thing just in looking at study trial design and how they do the outcomes is depending upon if you're trying to classify a side effect or an adverse reaction that kind of bores between a couple different things. It all depends on which group you put it in. You can, especially if you're talking about things that are less common, you can really, really, really unbalance something just depending upon if you're wavering between classes. And you don't always see kind of the angst that maybe the person was going through in classifying. You just can
1: see the end result of it and boom, here it is. So essentially, as far as rivaroxaban is concerned, it depends on how we decide to look at bleeding, what endpoint we decide. One of them was significant, showing rivaroxaban caused less bleeding, but then a different way you look at the data, it did not show a difference in bleeding versus warfarin. All
2: right, so then we, we kind of move on to the next agent here. So we've we've talked about... Our first, so we get kind of to the new kid on the block, a pixaban or Eloquist. And so this one they looked at warfarin and low heparin in, in one study with, again, similar to the other ones we're looking at, an N of about 5,000, about, or about 5,400, the Amplify study. And this one they found no difference in terms of VTE recurrence, but they did find overall the major bleed rate was lower, again, or, or better depending on how you define it with a Pixaban. 0.6% with apixaban versus 1.8% with warfarin. Again, there's a p-value less than less than 0.001. Looking looking pretty nice there.
0: And then again, kind of defining that major bleeding further down to major or chronically relevant bleeding, we also found that apixaban was better than the warfarin. So that effect difference was 4, 4.3%. Uh, with the Pixaband versus 9.7% with the, the Warfarin. And if we kind of listen to the, uh, Einstein trial, P trial results, we found that, you know, this effect was, wasn't really seen with Veroxaban. It was pretty equal with Warfarin versus here you can see that a Pixaband is slightly better than, uh, Warfarin.
1: And not to get too much into the AFib data, but we see similar signals in the AFib data of NOAC versus Warfarin, and that Apixaban appears to have a better bleeding profile versus warfarin, whereas some of the other agents either don't show that effect or show that effect depending on how you again slice and dice the data a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. And the very last agent in that category was the Edoxaban that was also compared in the Hokusai VTE trial against warfarin and low molecular weight heparin uh, in the patient population about 8,000. And again, surprise, surprise, the result in terms of efficacy was that there was no difference when it came to VTE recurrence. And what they also find looking at the safety analysis that there was no difference in major bleeding.
1: So if we're going to take all of the data together, which presumably the CHESS 2016 guidelines did, if we look at efficacy, which was one of the metrics that we said would be important to us to decide which way to go in terms of preferred therapy, no NOAC has better efficacy than warfarin. These were all non-inferiority studies, meaning that warfarin is just as good as a NOAC, and vice versa for the treatment of VTE to prevent that VTE from coming back. Right, so what we're left with then is starting to make our decision more about the safety
2: profile. And so we said apixaban does seem to have a better bleeding profile versus warfarin in VTE. Now rivaroxaban might. Again, it all depends upon how you're looking at the data, whether or not you're talking about major bleed, minor bleed, or you know how you determine what's clinically relevant to you. So that's kind of up in the air. And then we know that dabigatran and doxaban just flat out don't have any bleeding benefit over warfarin, so it's just kind of half of a dozen, you know, six of
1: another. So then in thinking about the recommendation, does this make sense? Now that we've gone through you know an overview of the data it was a grade 2b recommendation which meant a weak recommendation a suggestion versus a we recommend unfortunately oftentimes it doesn't matter what the grade of recommendation is if it's in a guideline someone's going to say well the guidelines say you should do xyz regardless of the strength of evidence so once it's there it's great to have the evidence recommendation grade or strength but the problem is that frequently clinicians ignore that and then they just read it for what it is black and white you should do no acts over warfarin period that's it chest guidelines they put their stamp of approval on it yeah it's the
2: same thing we run into with uh, approval studies you know if an approved you can uh, tear an approval study apart all day but as long as it's on the market and gotten its approval people will generally ignore it and just say well it's there i see it i've got you know let's let's use it
0: yeah and at the end of the day you're gonna look at you know various patient specific factors you know what does patient prefer i've i manage. managed handful, not whole lot of anti patient in my clinic. And, um, you know, most of those patients want to remain on warfarin because they like to know what their number is, you know, whether they're going to, um, bleed or whether they're going to clot. They're so worried. So it, it's satisfactory to them to have that lab checked at least once a month, even though they're very stable on that warfarin. Cost is another issue. Although, um, most of the insurance is, um, both government as well as um, public players. I've noticed you know, one of these agents always being as a preferred branded list uh, medication. But then those patients who have renal insufficiencies and we know we can't really use the NOACs there um, is where the warfarin treatment would come in handy. So again, uh, what has come out as a new recommendation. It's just a guideline. It's a guide. Uh, we as a clinician need to direct the therapy according to the patient factors.
2: And again, I'm Dr. Patel, I'm glad you mentioned that about your patient population. I've noticed similar things with ours as well, as I've been surprised that given the options that so many of my individuals kind of choose the devil you know, which is warfarin. It's not that they, they like the idea of being on it, but the numbers, it's, it's so much of a lot of our conversations are flat on the phone. Tell me, what's my number? what is, you know, that there's, there's kind of that, a lot of the, the well-being is, you know, can you give me, where is it at? And let's go from there. And, and that unease of saying, well, we think everything's okay, but not having that nice number to guide them. There's almost a sense of anxiety about that, that they just don't have that number to make, to kind of give them relief that says, well, I'm worried,
1: but the number says this.
0: Yeah. I think it kind of gives them the sense of security. Yes. Yes. You know, they're good now until the next INR is done. Mm
1: -hmm. So to kind of wrap up that Recommendation number two, I think that, at least from my point of view, I just don't agree with the fact that they're even weakly recommending a NOAC over warfarin and VTE. I think that, for me, there's no efficacy difference. If anything, they should be recommending a Apixaban for a better safety profile, knowing that you can't compare apples and oranges between trials. So either you put your stake on a Apixaban and say that's the one that you should do, or you say they're all equal because... Basically, warfarin's just as good for efficacy, and there's a safety potential benefit in one agent, and you can you know select based on patient preference or patient factors that would impact selection of agents. I don't think it's right, um, and I think that to me it speaks more of undue influence of things like the drug companies potentially influencing decision makers on the guideline committees to say, hey, we should be recommending no acts over warfarin because that's what we we do in our practice. Right. I just hate for it just simply to be convenience being the
2: word. I- and patient right. preference, but just convenience for all parties to say, well, I don't have to do the boiler rookie you're not to come in, so let's just, let's go to these.
1: Okay. Well, to move on to the third provocative thing, uh, this is recommendation number 18, and it reads as, in patients with acute DVT of the leg, we suggest not using compression stockings routinely to prevent post-thrombotic syndrome, and we'll just call that PTS from that one. And this and was also a grade 2B recommendation. So I guess the big question comes up with, with what, what is a compression stocking?
0: So they're actually, as the name says, it provides proper pressure in the legs uh, to move basically the, the fluids up back into the circulation. There is the graduated compression stockings and the elastic compression stocking. And the, basically the idea is that they are a little bit tighter towards your ankle and a little bit looser when it comes towards the thigh. Uh, so it basically brings all that fluid back from lower legs to upper legs and back into the circulation.
1: And in theory, even if you don't have a DVT in your leg, this could potentially help if you have edema in your lower extremities after an eight-hour day on your feet, if you have kind of pain and swelling in your ankles from being on your feet too long. In theory, it helps with that, but prior to the Chest 2016 guidelines, they recommended it for prevention of this thing called post-thrombotic syndrome. And that's basically pain, swelling, discoloration, or even ulcerations in your skin caused by venous insufficiency caused by a big blood clot that's blocking blood return on the venous side of your lower extremity.
0: And how often do we see this PTS in patients who've had a, a VTE?
1: So if you have a proximal DVT, which means a blood clot above your knee, anywhere from about 20 to 50 percent of patients will have PTS, where they have the pain, edema, swelling, things like that, in the lower extremity.
0: Well, that's a little higher number. Yeah.
1: And really, you know, because this is so common, to have something that even has a little efficacy would be a really big deal. And again, prior to CHESS 2016, we had two smaller single-center RCTs, randomized controlled trials, that appeared to show good benefit. The problem was, A, they were small, B, single-center, and then C, uh, they didn't use what are called placebo stockings. And you're like, well, what is a placebo stocking? It's basically a graduated compression stocking that isn't as tight. So it's a pantyhose, if you will, that is just not as tight as uh, these compression stockings that are quite a bit tighter. All right, so what we know, though, is,
2: again, as you mentioned, Dr. Kane, that there was some smaller studies They came out with a, a bigger study since since those guidelines, or since chest nine, and that one was large and multi-centered study, and this one was called, wait for it, the SOX trial, and this one had placebo blinding this time, and they had no benefit of using the stockings to prevent PTS, prevent being the operative word there.
0: I think the word sock just blew my mind.
1: Yes, there you go, there you go. You always got to come up with good, catchy names, too. So really, what this trial focused on was people who did not yet have PTS. So they had an acute DVT, they put these compression stockings on, and then they followed them for two years to see, did they develop PTS? So that's a very specific question, where it's a prevention trial, not a treatment trial. So once you have PTS... We don't have good data that these are efficacious or not. Anecdotally, patients will say, hey, I feel better because I have less swelling in my legs and things like that. So once you have PTS symptoms, the guidelines are pretty clear in the discussion section that it's okay to use these graduated compression stockings either once you have PTS or even if you don't have PTS but you just have acute pain from your DVT, you're good to go to put a compression stocking on the leg that has a DVT. You're not going to break it off and cause a pulmonary embolism or anything like that. It's okay to do that for symptomatic management when you have symptoms of PTS.
0: But this really is for should be used for prevention of PTS, and that's what the trial was aimed, aimed to study.
1: Yep, so it appears that it doesn't prevent it. So if you don't have symptoms, don't do it. If you do have symptoms and you like using them, great. If you have symptoms and you don't like them, then don't wear them. It, it's not going to change anything uh, if, if you don't perceive a benefit from them. Right, so again, it's one of
2: those where it's silent in those other areas, but here we have a, a big recommendation, and that's what most people are going to follow. I believe there's, you know, a quote that can be pulled out of the, right out of the the study, or excuse me, right out of the guidelines themselves. For patients with acute or chronic symptoms, a trial of graduated compression stockings is often justified. So you have a somewhat positive statement there, but again, maybe buried in the text. And as Dr. Kane, as you mentioned, so many times you you view these guidelines as these these kind of these bullet points of I'm going to do A and B and C and D. And there's a lot of subtext and nuance in
1: there that, that just kind of gets fallen by the wayside. So I guarantee you what's going to happen is now when someone reads this guideline, they don't read the text or the body, they just read the recommendation They're going to assume, okay, compression stockings don't work, period. We should never recommend them, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying it's not good for prevention. But for treatment, it's okay to go with that. And this is actually true with many guideline statements. Either we have insufficient quality of data, but we make a weak recommendation that gets interpreted as black and white gospel of what we should do. Or we just assume that the guidelines are up-to-date. You know, some of our guidelines are decades old, and we still use them and say, well, this is what the guidelines say. So critical thought is always important. Looking at newer data is all important the guidelines alone are not the end-all to be-all in terms of what you should do in clinical practice. Right, so I'm going to talk to the
2: students that a lot of things we end up doing end up in more of a gray area that, again, clinical trials based, or clinical or the recommendations based on clinical trials, again, in a perfect population. You're going to see more of a nuanced population in practice. And so, again, we have guidelines for a reason in general, but you also have to be aware of some of those grayer areas on the fringes there, and then you that's where the clinical judgment comes in as well.
0: Yeah, and I've seen that, you know, um, we being in Chicagoland area and thinking that, you know, we're all on the same board, we're practicing the same way, doesn't mean necessarily out there in California the practice is the same. Because I go to national meetings and attend all these CEs and stuff, and sometimes, you know, at the end of the sessions when there are questions and discussions coming up that you realize that people are sometimes in those uh, very particular recommendation, not just pertaining to anticoagulations, that the interpretation is completely different. So this right here is a good example to not just read the bolded, you know, um, two-sentence kind of main recommendation, but to kind of focus also on, okay, where is that recommendation coming from? What is the supporting evidence?
1: So to kind of wrap up, hopefully we've uh, blown your mind with our three shocking recommendations from CHESS 2016. Or at least knocked your socks off. At least knocked the socks off. I love it. So uh for me uh the one thing is the age old question of is it a NOAC or DOAC? And uh we don't have a good answer, but if you do choose to use the, the terminology of NOAC, you should know that you should be using it as a non vitamin K oral anticoagulant, and DOAC is your direct oral anticoagulant. No one agrees, but just be aware that NOAC may be a patient safety issue if it's interpreted as no anticoagulant.
0: To sum up, our second crazy recommendation from the new guidelines is where they compared the NOACs to the warfarin when it came to the treatment of DVT and PE um, in those patients who didn't have cancer for long-term use. And basically what we found, the efficacy across the board was similar. So again, these were non-inferiority trials. And what they found is that these agents were not superior to warfarin when it came uh, to efficacy marker of vte recurrence but what was different was a bleeding side effect so looking at the bigotran and uh, adoxaban they were pretty similar when it came to bleeding to the warfarin but looking into rivaroxaban and apixaban is where we found that apixaban is clearly better when it comes to uh, bleeding uh, incidences than warfarin, and the riroxaban, depending on how you look at the data, might be better than um, warfarin.
2: All right, and so for my recommendation, the third one we find is that they've recommended that in patients with an acute DVT of the, of the leg, they're suggesting not using compression stockings routinely to prevent post thrombotic syndrome and so what that doesn't mean is that no patient it doesn't mean that there's nobody that's going to benefit from it especially if somebody has acute symptoms so if they have developed um, a clot for example then it's perfectly justified or if a patient prefers to have something like that on board it's it's fine to use it they were kind of silent on these other areas and so just to be aware of that more nuanced practice
1: so with that, uh, if you'd like to look at the uh, CHEST 2016 guidelines, if you'd like to look at the ISTH guideline or recommendation statement about NOAC versus DOAC versus SOAC, or if you want to look at the SOX trial, uh, take a look at our references on helixtalk.com, where if you click on episode 50, you'll be able to see the references that we used and also some of the key points from this episode. Uh, So with that, we'll be back in three weeks. As always, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann.
0: And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.